Hello, and welcome to a very special Miami Book Fair edition of the Maris Review. I am so delighted to be joined today by Jess Walter. He's the author of six novels, including the bestsellers, Beautiful Ruins and the Financial Lives of the Poets, the National Book Award finalist, The Zero, and Citizen Vince, the winner of the Edgar Award for Best Novel. His short fiction has appeared in Harper's, McSweeney's, and Playboy, as well as the Best American Short Stories and the Best American Non-Required Reading. He lives in his hometown of Spokane, Washington. Hi, Jess. Tell me. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Yeah. I'm apparently in Miami and there's snow on the oh. ground. It's never happened. Yeah, I'm in Spokane. I wish I was wish I was at the Miami Book Fair, but it's great. It's great to be here uh, virtually. Yeah. Um, tell me about how Spokane is now and um, tell me about how it was 100 years ago and what made you want to write a historical yeah. novel about that. Yeah, I live in in what was for most of the 20th and early 21st century, a quiet, um, mid-sized city of a couple hundred thousand people. And I was a reporter in that in that city. And I think I first came across this um, sort of small historical moment, the free, the free speech fights of 1909 uh, in the morgue of my newspaper. And I just always thought, why have I never heard of this? And, mm. um, and it just was one of those seeds that plants. I I always think being a novelist is a little bit like being a magpie. You fly around picking up little pieces of garbage and bring them back to your nest and you never know what you'll use. <laughs> um, but it was one of those things I just always found myself thinking about. Um, Spokane in the last 10 or 15 years, like a lot of Northwest cities, has just really exploded in cool and culture and great restaurants. Um, but for most of the time I lived here growing up, it was a really quiet and kind of conservative place. And so to look at those, at these old postcards and photos and see this teeming city, um, you know, doubling in size every six or seven years, it was just something that I wanted to write about. I also always wanted to write a novel about income inequality. Much of my fiction is about the working class roots that I have and the, the sorts of people I live in and around in Spokane. And the more I looked at 1909 and at um, the end of the last Gilded Age, the more I felt like I was looking at the moment we're in now. So those two things, kind of the desire to capture that moment and to write about um, you know, this gap between the wealthy and the poor, but not in a didactic way, kind of came together in this novel. Yeah, Jess, it's uh, a little creepy how <laughs> um, so many things from that era are back in our discourse now. Yeah. Um, certainly inco uh, income disparity, but also yeah. free speech and yeah when and how to protest and what the right kind of protest is and who's allowed to protest. Yeah. And um, the effectiveness of it. Yeah. It, um, you know, I, I, I didn't know that, that the summer would erupt in, in, you know, those incredibly moving protests against the, uh, against police mistreatment of black Americans. Um, and to watch the Black Lives Matter protests was, you know, as as you're finishing a novel, as you're getting ready for a novel to come out, it, it was this eerie sense of the echoes of time kind of coming back. But there were other ideas of protests that kept 
hitting me. Um, the protagonists in the novel, um, Ryan Gig Dolan, are 16 and 23. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who's um, in, in many ways the kind of Western hero who rides into town to save the day, is 19. And and um, over, I had watched the last few years the the protests in Parkland, the shooting survivors. Um, demanding basic gun laws um, and being told, you know, there's nothing we can do. And when you've survived a mass shooting, you be told there's nothing you can do, that, how harrowing that must be. Uh, and then also, you know, with issues like climate change, watching students walk out um, in protest, demanding some sort of reaction to uh, to climate change, I, I just really became inspired by the way young people's idealism drives is the forward movement of so many of of these cultural issues. Uh, and so, to find a moment in 1909 when um, a character like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, ten years before she even has the right to vote, is goes west as a teenager to to you know rally. Um, uh, people to the cause of social justice um, was it was a way to write about the moment now without again getting caught up in it without you know that that difficult thing as a contemporary novelist and you try to capture the moment and it's so slippery it gets away from you um, and so to find this moment in the past that's so connected felt like um, yeah it just felt like one of those stories I had to tell. Hey, it's Maris. I'm here to let you know about Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company that makes eating well easy and affordable. It lets you choose from a wide array of easy to follow recipes perfect for keto, paleo, and plant-based diets. Recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step -step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you. Ingredients come pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepped. And I say this with love, even my husband and I weren't able to mess this up. Josh, thank you for making me the most delicious curried pork chops I've ever had. With Green Chef, it's easy to eat well and discover new recipes every week. It's been really good to break out of our rut and try new things. Go to greenchef.com slash marisreview80 and use code marisreview80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. Once again, go to greenchef.com slash MarisReview80 and use code MarisReview80 to get $80 off, including free shipping. I don't know if you've seen this, um, but there's a line going around about the current moment saying, I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, it, it made me think of the cold millions, yeah. particularly because here were these workers um, arguing for their basic humanity. Yeah. Yeah. In 1909, the, you know, it was a very different world in many ways. The, the, um, Spokane at the time is doubling in size every six or seven years. As I say, there are seven rail lines coming through this one small city. Um, and if you could, if you, the, the parallel is the internet. The railroad in 1909 was the right. internet. Um, this was the place where mining and timber and logging money all came together, and agriculture money all came together 
And so um, because of that, it was a kind of tramp central station. You had all of these hobos, um, what we would call homeless indigent workers now, who would train and walk into Spokane um, and look for jobs. And they had to work with job agencies, job sharks, more than 20 of them up and down Stephen Street in the center of downtown, where they would be charged a dollar um, to, for a job. Uh, those corrupt job agents would, would then split the dollar with the with the foreman and uh, often send them packing after a couple of weeks of, of really difficult work. Uh, I named my characters Gig and Rye um, at the time, one of those novelist things when you're by yourself, you think is so clever as the sort of Rye nod to the gig economy. Um, but I did keep thinking of the Uber driver who has to, you know, who has to work, um, you know, who like these workers has to provide his own his own vehicle has to pay for um, his or her own insurance. You know, we, the, the amazing progress that, the, that labor made in the middle of the 20th century, middle of the 20th century, we've mostly done away with. We've, you know, and the, the middle class that it created, we're in danger of eroding, you know, the way that the world is in 1909, where um, you have mining magnates living in vast estates on the hill um, and everyone else sort of scruffing and scrapping along. The idea that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps yeah. is such a strong American dream type of situation. And yeah. in in Spokane at the time, it, yeah. it, it's so clearly not something that a, a normal person could do. I mean, if you don't own boots, where there are no straps. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I, I, I think growing up as I did in a union family, you know, my both of my grandfathers were itinerant workers um, in the 1930s. My grandpa Jess, whom I'm named after, arrived in Spokane on a train he'd hopped. Uh, and so very personal to me. But the other side of it's very personal too. my dad, a high school dropout, worked in an aluminum plant for 40 years um, and provided put his kids through college. And so I grew up with this egalitarian belief passed down through a union family that we pull everybody up and by pulling everybody up um, we make a, a world that people can live in and this is this is again the ethos that that creates the middle class in America um, and one that since the 1980s and um, the deregulation of industry the destruction of, of unions we've worked pretty hard to dismantle and um, you know we until we've arrived at a place that that the robber barons of the early 1900s would have recognized completely that during a pandemic, billionaires are, would get $2 trillion richer than they were before this all started. And um, and so, you know, to again, to tell that story in a non-didactic way, um, the great thing, the thing that fiction is able to do is to put you in a life and put you in the interiority of characters going through these things so that... Um, you know, for me, the novel sort of coalesced. I had a very different title. I thought it would be a, a much more of a Western, actually. And it was going to be called Nothing West of Dead. I thought, oh, that's a great rough <laughs> title for a, you know, for a, um, uh, for a Cormac McCarthy-like book about violence in the West. And it wasn't until I had Rye sitting in um, early on in the novel, sitting in the house of a mining magnate named Lem Brand with um, hot water coursing through the floor, warming his feet, sipping a brandy, surrounded by floor-to-ceiling books. And for me, books are always aspiration. Mm -hmm. 
um, as a first generation college student, books are the only social ladder that I knew. And so for Rise sitting in that moment and realizing that it's not one or two or three or even 10 layers between him and this wealth, but hundreds, thousands, maybe an infinite number of layers. Um, and this, the sheer unfairness of it. And for him, thinking about the cold millions out there who will never sit in a room like this and understand a place like this exists, it is, a, it is such a basic question of, you know, do you care about other, other, other people or do you not? And, um, you know, and I, I, think, I think to take that beyond meme or slogan or bumper sticker, you know, fiction can put you inside the, hopefully inside the head of somebody who's feeling that really deeply. And that's one of the real joys of the cold millions is that you use a close third perspective a lot of the time to follow Rye, but then you let so many different characters have their own voice. Yeah. Um, I think after writing Beautiful Ruins and writing all sorts of different characters and voices, I became as interested in the breadth of these stories I was telling as the depth. Um, we talked about mm. great interiority you can provide is a wonderful thing. But I also, especially when you're in 1909, which is almost like science fiction, you have to create, it's a slightly different language. You have to create different sets of transportation. You have all this different way. And I, I really wanted to show a broader um, a world, a bigger canvas than, you know, than Rye's uh, experience of these things and Rye's coming of age. As I was writing, um, that there's a sort of central motif of the novel, which is the Spokane River, this big northwestern blasting river that shoots through the novel as it cuts through the, the city. And I, and I imagined that that big third person stream was was the main channel of the river and i and i was able to bring in these undercurrents these tributaries that um that would tell you as much about the surrounding land and the characters and um and as often happens those characters were just so fun to write ursula the great who is a vaudeville star who sings to a live cougar or del dalvo a bitter old pinkerton detective um those kinds of characters it's like being it's like being a character actor and you get these great little meaty roles that you know that get to change the story but also the other thing i think i felt was i had never written this sort of historical fiction about a period this long ago and i just kept realizing that all of my characters were gone they were dead mm. and this idea of sort of it was almost like telling these little ghost stories having these first person stories come in and um yeah much of what i do probably to my shame is just to entertain me <laughs> um to keep writing fun and with the hope that the writer that the reader is also entertained and and those sections often for me are the are the most fun to write you can feel your joy in the Dell oh. sections. <laughs> yeah. um, tell me about researching that, though. I mean, he swears like no one else I've heard before. Yeah, that was so fun. Um, I had I, I I immersed myself in research. I'm a former journalist, and I just I I if there's microfilm blindness, I almost got it. I was just in the library reading old newspapers, books, um, uh, stories, and and. Another echo of the time now is is 
the use of private security companies and even more so. And at the time, companies would hire Pinkertons or other private security companies to come in and break unions, bust heads, infiltrate, all sorts of nasty things. And I was reading the biography of James McParland and reading stories of Dashiell Hammett, who was a Pinkerton who uh, tells a possibly um, uh, fictitious story about being approached to murder um, Frank Little, an IWW officer um, who appears in the novel. Oh. And re- reading those stories and just, you know, embedding myself in that world, it uh, it really made me want to write this sort of detective character as as a kind of missing link between the Western and the noir. Mm-hmm. Um, and that voice I really wanted to hear. So I started reading late 19th century, early 20th century British mysteries, and the language just overwhelmed me. Um, you know, words like lobcocked and um, uh, and and the first words that that Del Delvo utters when he arrives in Spokane. Spokane gave me the morbs, um, and and to have a sense of unease described as the morbs, you know, as a morbid feeling. I just thought, ah, oh, sometimes the character just sort of announces themselves. Um, and yeah, reading reading this period and. Um, you know, and imagining that he would have the sort of faint echo of this 19th century British detective, um, you know, dropped in this other world. It uh, it was such a fun voice to write, and um, and 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 also to write. You know, my my first literary hero was Kurt Vonnegut, and his advice to all writers was to um, uh, to drop the first chapter and put a villain in it. And um, I have to say that. You know, I, I did both of those in this book. So uh, one time I did drop the first chapter and I, uh, and I tried to people it with, um, you know, with these big um, villains, but then to also hopefully make them, you know, give them the same fullness of character. Absolutely. Um, you know, you have the, the cop who thinks he's a good man and is doing a John, good job. Yeah. John Sullivan, uh, who was a real character and whose fate um, in the novel matches his fate in mm. uh, in the real world. Um, the novel begins and ends with two anecdotes that really occurred in Spokane before and after the free speech riots. Uh, and then much of the rest of the novel, again, owing to that level of research, uh, everything from Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's background to a newspaper story at the end that hopes she will um, uh, return to her husband and get the the rich life that every American wife deserves. Um, you know, so much of the novel really came from research. And then there's, uh, and then as always happens um, with a novelist, you have to fire the research department and um, <laughs> just really concentrate on the fiction itself and, and try to, you know, craft this uh, Ryan gig story or a- almost around um, the real particulars of these, of these real people. Yeah. Tell me, tell me a little more about that because you do it with beautifully with beautiful ruins too. Well, thanks. Um, just, having real life figures interact with the characters who were created inside your head. Yeah. I think it's sort of apt that I'm writing historical fiction now because historical fiction does that by, by its nature. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Abraham Lincoln appears in so many novels, you know, and I think readers are savvy enough to know, um, they're reading a fictional version of this real character, but to me, they're they're a little bit like location. Hmm. If I'm writing about New York and I get the details wrong, 
um, then it's wrong. You know, uh, even my fictional New York has to resemble the real New York. I can change the name of streets. I can, you know, put a cafe where there isn't one. Um, but if I put it, you know, on the, on a plane, um, just outside of, uh, of Kansas, it's not really going to, I guess that would be Manhattan. I take that back, but, um, <laughs> but you, you do owe, you owe the reader that sense of, of the real, I think. And, um, I, I first did it in my novel, Citizen Vince, which is about, uh, um, a felon who is desperate to vote in the 1980 presidential election. And, um, and I, I first put real characters in because I had, I, I knew it was going to take place over a week. I was so, you know, you cling to these structures in that way. And I got to, and I realized that there was a sixth day, there was a seventh day I hadn't accounted for it. My novel was taking place over six weeks. And I thought, what am I going to do with that extra day? And I also had my protagonist flying from New York to Spokane. And so I thought, I'll just show what Carter and Reagan are doing that day. Yeah. So I put Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan in my novel. And it felt like this, um, it felt like a way to make something more expansive, to make it, to connect it to the real in a way. Um, and maybe as a former journalist, I, I feel as if there's a, a quality like relevance that I miss in journalism that I will also want in my fiction. I think I'm an outward looking storyteller too. I look out at the world. Um, with Richard Burton, it was, you know, reading his incredible diary entries and thinking in beautiful ruins, um, you know, there's a two-year gap in his diary that takes place exactly when my novel is written. So almost imagining you could slide, you know, this bit into uh, into the world, into that world. And and with The Cold Millions, it was the same way. I had the basic outline of the free speech riots, of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's um, involvement of the police officers and um, the corrupt cops and the not corrupt cops and the um, the other labor organizers and if I could craft a story that that swerves in and around their real experiences then to me it's grounded in a way that makes me kind of thrilled as a fiction writer yeah tell me tell me a little bit more about the industrial workers of the world in 1909 uh, the wobblies the IWW the wobblies um uh, were a nascent labor organization. They'd only been around for about four years. They started in 1905 with a convention in Chicago. Um, and they were unique even at the time for allowing anyone in the union. Anyone with a job could be in this union. Other unions had rules um, that wouldn't allow women in, wouldn't allow racial minorities, wouldn't allow black members or Native American members or... Um, or Chinese workers. And the IWW said, if you're a human being, you can be in the union. And that simple, idealistic, egalitarian idea um, struck me as this sort of Edenic thing. And again, I, it was one of the reasons I wanted to write young characters. I wanted to write about that fierce idealism that won't take no for an answer, that, um, that sees through all of the real politic to... Um, to, to the truth. And so uh, the IWW by 1909 had um, taken on the cause of 
many of these hobos and tramps and indigent workers. Um, they were also fighting against child labor, fighting for not a five-day work week, but a six-day work week, not for an eight-hour work day, but a but a 10 hour workday. Um, they were fighting for simple things like if you cut your foot off at a sawmill, um, that, that, that maybe they would help pay for the, the, uh, the medical care. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to imagine that, that, you know, we should have some sort of guaranteed health care, but it was, you know, something they pushed for the, the IWW by the, by 19, um, 17 by World War One was they were also um, pacifists. They were also um, against violence. And in Spokane, it was it was really one of the first uses of nonviolent protest to to affect change in the whole country. A model that the that civil rights activists studied. Um, that uh, that Gandhi took note of the you know that this this protest which which took place in the fall of 1909 was purely speaking. Um, the city council of Spokane had in, a, in in an effort to keep this union from organizing and gaining members and had had. Um, had decided that no more than three people could gather on the street at one time, uh, meaning that if if an IWW orator climbed up on a soapbox and three people gathered, then they were in violation of the law. Um, the the Wobblies decided to test this and sent out basically a request that anyone should come to Spokane and speak, and this set these two. Um, these two forces on on a collision course. The city deciding it would break the union this way, um, using the police and and um, other uh, private security for forces to you know forcibly put down these the, this protest. Um, there were beatings. There, um, there's a harrowing scene involving um, uh, prisoners being packed in a in a sweat box in a tiny cell, more than 20 of them in a nine foot by 10 foot cell, which actually happened. Um, so the, the, they were so brutally treated, more than 500 were arrested over the course of the protests. Uh, they filled the jail, they filled the, ar the nearby army brig, uh, and then they closed a school, an old high school, and filled that with prisoners. So that they put out, they, they made them beat rocks in the street. It, it, it was a really brutal attempt to put down this, um, uh, this free speech action. And it's so hard to witness that, to read about that, and not at least understand the inclination to say, well, nonviolence didn't work. <laughs> right. And, it, you know, and it's, again, watching the, watching the, Black Lives Matter protests this summer and, you know, and, and feeling a sense of, of heartache and dismay to watch, you know, protesters treated violently to watch, you know, uh, gas used and, you know, it, it, that sense of deja vu of, um, you know, really comes back to you. And it's one of the reasons, without giving away too much about the novel, I wanted to push all the way through to 1964 to sort of the height of the labor gains in America, because those revolutionary moments don't seem like they win in the moment, but they push the needle, they change the culture. Um, and that was important for me to have a novel that begins that, that spans 1864 sort of the first anecdote in the book although it's out of 
chronology mm-hmm. uh, and goes a hundred years, you know, a hundred years uh, of my own solitude, I guess, uh, living in Spokane. <laughs> but the, um, just that, just that idea of, uh, of the progress that can be made, you know, uh, because it, you can, you can lose hope, you know, watching some reading about something like that. And, and I love how the IWW um, clearly understood that intersectionality is key to make yeah. advancements too. And that seems yeah. very yeah. out of their time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were, I mean, there were suffragists, there yeah. were, um, you write a really beautiful um, Native American character named Jules who, yeah. I mean, it's interesting Spokane as a whole, because of those uh, railroads, could become such an ethnic, well, I hate yeah. saying melting pot, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, there was a little Italy and a Chinatown, and um, and much like now, there were much of the of the anger of some of the natives uh, well not the natives because the natives have been pushed off the land as someone right. says this you know this is a city named for the people pushed off of the pushed off of it but the this the people of Spokane you know were very fearful of immigrants at the time it was central european immigrants Jew, jewish workers and uh, montenegrins and bulk people from the balkans but uh, before that it had been italians and before that it had been chinese rail workers and um and yeah it was for me it was important to have a character like jules who is a spokane tribal member um displaced from uh, from this river that was the lifeblood of his of his childhood and his life, um, you can't ever forget. You, you know, I think it's easier maybe in eastern cities to forget that this was one that this land once belonged to people with an entirely different culture. In cities in the West, it's just not that far um, removed. Mm-hmm. I grew up hearing about the horse bones. Um, that existed at Plantsbury Park near my house where 800 horses had been shot by cavalry um, in an effort to uh, to defeat um, a small uprising um, that hadn't even involved the tribal members whose horses were shot. Um, and so, you know, to have that a generation, I was born later, I was born in 1965 and people would still talk about seeing gleaming horse bones at Plants Ferry Park. To be able to include a detail like that shrinks history. I'll never forget reading um, The Known World by Edward P. Jones and this moment in which he, he briefly telescopes forward into the present day and then comes back to the end of the Civil War just to remind you how we're still living that time and in that world. And um, and it's something I really appreciate when historical fiction reminds you um, not just that history, history repeats, but that it's not that far back, that it's that we're living the, the, um, the results of all those things still. And it becomes so apparent in, in reading your novel that Xenophobia has been a tool to quash rebellions and protests for for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I mean, Trump is such a a 19th century politician. I mean, his Mm. his base um, instincts, his 
you know, his brashness, his um, even his commitment to corruption really, you know, uh, th- throws back to Tammany and to, you know, yeah. other, other political eras. Um, but beyond that, I think, you know, we are constantly being asked, um, we're, we're, we're constantly given, given opportunities to choose, you know, as Lincoln called them, the angels of our better nature. And, um, and I think, you know, longing for a moment longing for political candidates to ask us to do better, to think of one another, you know, um, it, I don't think you need to read historical fiction to find yourself in that place. No, not at all. Um, tell me a little bit more about, let's bring it back to another sure. thing that's happening in the present, which is that with Gig and Rye, Oh, now that you've told me that it's based on the big economy, of course. Um, they're barely scraping by, and there's this whole class of workers who don't have a safety net, don't have, like, they, they will be destroyed if one thing goes wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah I, when I was in college, and I was a teenage father, and I lived in government-subsidized housing, and I worked at a pizza place and I was a campus security guard and I was trying desperately to not drop out of college. And I remember going to my dad and saying, can you get me on at the aluminum plant? I probably need to support this kid. And he said, no, you should finish college. And, you know, but I look at that moment and I, I think we've somehow convinced ourselves now that there are, again, in, in a sort of reverse of what Rye experiences, that there are all these gaps between wealthy and, and him. Um, we've convinced ourselves that, that, that the edge is, isn't as close as it really is. Um, and having been in a place where if a car breaks down, I drop out of college. And I, you know, then, you know, having been in those situations, I, I think, um, I think, again, it's another thing that historical fiction can, can give you. You can be inside characters whose desperation is so low. Um, you know, I, I hear people talk about homelessness now as if it's, um, as if it's uh, an issue like litter. You know, it's oh. like, oh, there are so many homeless people in the park, and they're so messy. And um, these, are, these are lives. These are human lives that have, that, that have slipped through the cracks. We've turned... Um, a home, a house, the basic um, shelter that every human needs into um, into the only reliable source of middle class wealth in America. Um, you buy a home, you watch the value increase. It's become um, it's become an, the economic engine that that labor once was. The most people's wealth is tied up in their homes. So of course. Um, by nature, that's going to exclude people at the bottom of the ladder. It, for years, because of redlining, it, it excluded African Americans, um, and that has never been addressed or fixed. But it, but besides the racial component, it it also it imprints upon the poorest Americans uh, a generational poverty that it's that becomes impossible to escape. Um, so to write about characters like Gig and Rye and to make their their um, challenge a real basic one: Am I going to pay a dollar for a job? Am I going to get a dollar a day? Um, 
Will I spend that dollar sleeping on a boarding house porch or will I spend it in a tavern? Um, I'm sort of pleased that my characters choose tavern every once in a while. Um, <laughs> uh, but that, you know, in some ways it's like you can understand biology by looking at a single cell organism. And I think mm -hmm. looking at Gig and Rye and these simple decisions they make, um, hopefully, again, that's the great thing about about fiction is the sense of empathy it creates. Hopefully, you know, we can look at, at the decisions, the other decisions people have to make with, with more empathy, um, you know. And, and again, writing historical fiction, writing something set in 1909, um, there's the thrill of recreating that world, uh, which I definitely fell into. And then there's the sort of responsibility of talking about the world you live in now. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I love about both Gig and eventually Rye yeah. is that um, they understand that fiction is a yeah. great tool of empathy. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're both in the beginning of the novel. Gig is um, I, one of the one thing I read was that they used to call it the hobo library, a vast hobo library. If if you were one of the more discerning reading tramps, you'd meet another one. You'd say, "I've got a Jack London book. What do you have? You know, oh, I've got uh, um, you know Mary Shelley's Frankenstein." And you'd swap books. And I love the idea of this vast hobo library. And Gig has come across um, two fifths of War and Peace, and uh, he's very much a self-taught autodidact, like I am. And so he does what I think I would have done in my early twenties, which is to read forty percent of something and pronounce it the greatest work of literature. <laughs> um, I might still do that, actually. And, uh, and so I love that about him. I love that he hasn't actually even read it, but you know, but he's certain this is, and he, and. And it becomes a sort of um, totemic book for both Gig and Rye because, you know, as, as um, Rye reads it, almost to understand his brother, to understand, you know, um, Gig is much more driven by the ideals of the industrial workers of the world. And Rye is much more of a pragmatist, a bit of a clothes horse. You know, he longs for a good pair of gloves and a suit. Mm -hmm. um, and Gig is, and I think he wants to understand his brother, but I think it becomes over the course of the book and really of his life, um, a way of understanding this moment of history that he happened to be thrown into. Um, and again, you know, for a poor kid whose path to becoming a writer was a library card, um, two of the most moving scenes for me in the book take place in libraries, you know, the simple decency of a librarian showing Rye where to find the rest of, of uh, War and Peace. Um, my sister is a uh, library director for a for a county library, and uh, I think I'm always imagining, you know, what she might think of various characters and scenes. Yeah, that I mean, the, the idea of the library remains just one of the most... yeah. And there's a beautiful Carnegie Library from that period in in my city, and um, one one of the great things about living in a city that peaked in 1910 is that. Um, is that mo most of the architecture is still here. I've lived in three yeah. straight 100-year-old houses. I'm in right now um, a uh, carriage house um, built behind my home in 1910 of River Rock. And um, so it's, it's almost like you're living in the world you're describing and walking around to the, to the house where Police Chief John Sullivan actually lived and um, 
you know, and staring through the window, which hasn't really changed. It was, I, I, I was lucky as a fiction writer to be able to access those places in that time. Yeah. And, and tell me how you've been weathering the pandemic and what it's like to. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I think it's sort of embarrassing as a writer because I quit my job in 1995 and have been social distancing ever since. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, you, as a novelist, you work alone. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, 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 there are many things that I often feel like are just not my story because I'm not uh, experiencing them. I felt that way this summer. I was, I, I went to, to all of the um, Black Lives Matter um, protests in my hometown. Um, I think there were three big ones and, but it's not my story. It's not, you know, I, I, I can stand back and watch. And I feel that way, you know, the, for a middle-aged kind of well-off novelist um you know i'm just eating more takeout uh, that seems to be the big difference you know i miss my friends um you know my my kids were home for a longer period they're they're adult and off on their own but they came home and lived in the house for a while mm-hmm. but um but i yeah i'm really hopeful for that you know that we can get back to normal for those bookstores and restaurants and um bars that i i miss terribly yeah, me too. That's yeah. it's the bars, restaurants, and bookstores. Truly, yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I always imagine what a writer's culture would look like. You know, there would be there would just be those things. There'd be a one cash machine, and the rest would be bars, <laughs> restaurants, and, and uh, bookstores. And so, speaking of bookstores, what yeah. have you been reading lately? Oh my gosh, um, you know, uh, I had. I'm sort of funny about books when everyone's reading something, I almost feel like it's a crowded restaurant I don't want mm-hmm. to go into. Mm-hmm. And so I often discover things years after everyone has and then feel like an idiot that I want to go around and talk about, you know. Have you read Wolf Hall? Oh my God, <laughs> we have to talk about Wolf Hall. You know? But I, um, uh, So I read that. Um, I The works of Olga Tagarchuk, I've sort of been making my way through. Yeah. And, Flights is just this, um, I just keep dipping in and out of it. Um, I find it to be terrific. Um, uh, what else have I been reading? Um, oh, uh, um, it seems like my mind always blanks when I'm... I know, it's a tough... Yeah. Okay, yeah, how about I, this? How about it's this? Not, it's not my first interview. You'd think I'd be prepared for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to trumpet and walk out of the interview because of that really difficult question. Um, how about what book do you wish Gig and Rye could have read? Oh, wow. That's, um, uh, I wish they could have read, I wish uh, they would have read Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's uh, autobiography, The Rebel Girl. They, um, uh, you know, to it's interesting again to to choose that youthful moment. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn ended up as the uh, chairwoman of the Communist Party USA, and to write about a proto-communistic movement like the IWW um, requires ending the story before the horrors of the Soviet Union and Maoist China and so many other autocratic regimes that um, that you know gave communism a name that obviously it has not uh, rebounded from, um, but still to see the the fullness of, of her life and the challenges and the things that she battled. I, I 
at the end of this novel, I did the something I sort of didn't think I would ever do as a fiction writer, which is to write a a set of acknowledgments almost as long as one of the chapters. And I did that in part because I do feel like this moment in history that I stumbled upon is an important one and that there are books people should read outside of the novel to immerse themselves in in, um, the free speech riots and what was at stake in the idealism that really launched the labor movement that, um, you know, that for all its faults, we miss greatly. Uh, so, um, yeah, they, I, I think they could read just about anything in the, uh, in the acknowledgements and yeah. I'd be pleased. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This yeah, thank you. Mara. Real pleasure. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.